Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome aboard. We have a question still hanging over from last week. For what did the ancient Romans use a vomitorium? What did they use a vomitorium for? All right, and new questions for this week. Dr. Nick, the quack doctor who often appears on The Simpsons, was supposedly modeled on a famous celebrity's real-life doctor who was notorious for overprescribing. Who is that celebrity? And yet one more question. In 1935, six-year-old Hildegard Domak's accident with a stitching needle led to the introduction of the first commercially available what? So what was introduced because of this accident that six-year-old Hildegard Domak had with a stitching needle? If you know the answer to any of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text, as I know many of you now prefer to do, 514-800. So phone number 514-790-0800, text 514-800. And uh, of course, uh, you can also pose whatever question you may have in the domain of science on either of those uh, uh, platforms. I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth. And uh, let me uh, start off by doing just that for you here. We're going to talk a little bit about cheese and uh, an interesting myth with Parmesan. You know, Time Magazine, usually a very, very reliable source of information. But in this case, they got this wrong. Uh, headline was, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warned that products labeled 100% Parmesan might actually contain cheese substitutes like wood pulp. That's what Time Magazine said in 2016. Well, the FDA did not issue any such warning. In 2012, it did send a letter to Castle Cheese about the company's grated Parmesan cheese containing more cellulose than the 2% that is commonly allowed as an anti-clumping agent. There was no mention of wood pulp. Then in 2016, Bloomberg News, also pretty reliable, commissioned a study of grated Parmesan cheeses and found that some contained up to 8% cellulose. The Parmesan cheese you sprinkle on your penne could be wood, screamed the Bloomberg headline, setting the blogosphere on fire. The wood connection sprang from the imagination of an overeager headline writer. Yes, cellulose can come from wood pulp, but it can also come from asparagus or any other plant material, and its origin is irrelevant. Cellulose is the most prevalent organic compound in the world. It is the basic structural material of the cell walls of plants, making up some 2 to 4% by weight of all fruits and vegetables. And for those of you who are chemically inclined, you know that cellulose is a polymer of glucose, many glucose units joined together in a chain. But our digestive system cannot break that chain down to individual glucose molecules, and therefore we recognize this as fiber. 
And the human body doesn't care if the ingested cellulose originated in wood pulp or in an apple. We cannot digest cellulose, meaning that unlike ruminants such as cows, we cannot break it down into fundamental absorbable components. For us, cellulose, as I said, is a form of fiber, and fiber is important for the health of our colon. Bran, widely regarded as healthy because of its fiber content, contains about 35% cellulose. The increased bulk provided in the stomach and the intestines by cellulose has been associated with appetite suppression, which is why many diets recommend foods with a high fiber content. So finding cellulose in grated cheese is absolutely a non-issue in terms of any negative health effect. Indeed, you could eat pure cellulose, and the only problem you might encounter is an increased frequency of bathroom visits. Why do we find cellulose in some grated cheeses? Because it prevents the cheese particles from clumping and makes for easier pouring. But it isn't right to add more cellulose than is allowed, especially if it is done to unethically increase profits. Cellulose is cheaper than cheese, and adding it as a filler is fraud in the sense that consumers are not getting what they think they are getting. A bigger issue, however, is that when people think they are buying real Parmesan, they may be getting something else. Real Parmesan comes from the Parma region in Italy, and there are rules about how it has to be made. It cannot contain anything but unpasteurized milk, and that milk has to be less than 20 hours from cow to cheese. The only other two things that the cheese can contain is rennet and salt. Rennet is the mixture of enzymes derived from the stomach of calves that turns milk into curds. If a cow is ill and requires treatment with antibiotics, its milk cannot be used. No hormones that increase milk production can be administered. Even the diet of the cows is regulated. No silage, which is fermented store crops. That's not allowed. How can you tell if you're getting authentic Parmesan cheese? Well, you can look for Parmigiano Reggiano on the label and with that name printed on the rind. But in Canada and the U.S., there are all sorts of grated cheeses sold under the name Parmesan because unlike in Europe, it is not a protected name. There have been cases where Parmesan was actually found to be a mixture of other cheeses, such as mozzarella, Swiss, and cheddar, with a dose of cellulose thrown in. The U.S. Justice Department prosecuted Castle Cheese for the adulteration and misbranding of cheese products, driving the company into bankruptcy. But again, this is not a health issue. But people were being misled because they thought they were getting authentic Parmesan cheese when they were not. The imitations do not offer the same taste as Parmigiano Reggiano, which has the second highest concentration of glutamic acid after Roquefort. Glutamic acid and its salts provide a taste referred to as umami, familiar to people as the taste produced by MSG, that is monosodium glutamate. Of course, because in this case, glutamic acid is naturally occurring, it doesn't raise the ire of the anti-MSG crowd. 
So what's the bottom line here? I, for me, I don't decide on the nature of my grated cheese, whether or not it contains cellulose. Taste is what uh, decision should be made on. And uh, I think there's no question that uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano uh, tastes better than the imitations. And I tell you something else that you can do. You can use the rind of uh, uh, Parmesan cheese in soup, and it gives it really a, a delightful uh, taste. <laughs> but the, the other interesting thing to, to note here is the, the presence of, of glutamic acid which is present in, in many different cheeses, not only in Parmesan cheese, and is partially responsible for the taste of, of cheese. But the same glutamic acid in, in the form of its monosodium salt, when it is added to other foods, then of course it becomes an additive and it has to be labeled as such on, on the product uh, uh, label. And as you probably know, there are many people who claim uh, that they that they get reactions to monosodium glutamate. At one time, that was called the Chinese restaurant syndrome, although there was much opposition to using that term because it was deemed to be derogatory in terms of you know accusing Chinese restaurants of of uh, of doing uh, harm. Well, I mean, it's true that monosodium glutamate is added often in copious amounts in in, in Chinese food. But uh, there is not a whole lot of legitimacy to the accusation that it causes all, this, all sorts of devastating effects. It is true that some people can have a reaction to it, which uh, normally subsides relatively quickly. They get a flushing in the face. They can get a headache from it. But it is far more rare than all of the articles written about it would suggest. And uh, no one is ever uh, talking about uh, Parmesan cheese or any other cheese uh, causing, uh, you know, uh, Italian cheese syndrome reaction, even though it does contain significant amounts of uh, monosodium uh, glutamate. Uh, another thing I'll mention about Parmesan cheese, as you know, it, this is not cheap. This is a very expensive cheese, but uh, you can freeze it. And actually, when you freeze it, uh, you can grate it uh, pretty easily. And, uh, you know, if you just have uh, pasta with a good tomato sauce topped off with some uh, grated Parmesan cheese, well, you can't beat it. So you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check uh, traffic and be right back. Okay, we have a number of people on the line, uh, perhaps with some correct answers. Let's try Rick from Pierrefonds first. Hi, Rick. I think we lost Rick. Let's try Don from St. Lazar. Don. I'm here. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yes, yes go uh, ahead. The, uh, the first one, I believe, uh, the vomitorium is when the, uh, they had the uh, big uh, food orgies back in the day. They would eat, 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 and then go throw up and come back and eat, eat, eat again. Well, the reason I asked that question was to trigger that uh, wrong answer. <laughs> okay. Because this is uh, this is something that is commonly believed that the vomitorium was some sort of place where the Romans would go to vomit so that they could eat more. Uh, 
no, that is not correct. The vomitorium right. actually was the exit of the uh, of an auditorium or of a theater. It oh. had nothing to do with uh, vomiting, but it is but a have... common misconception. And the so second one we've... would be. Go ahead. The second one would be the doctor on TV there for the uh, Doctor Oz. No, no, although he would be a good candidate for that. No, it was not Dr. Not Dr. Oz. Oh, okay, yeah, so thanks very much. Thank you. Let's try Mike from Laval, who also may have an answer. Mike? Yeah, I, I just want to say you have a great show. It's very interesting. You always learn something. And Thank you. The, That's the point. That's the point. Well, it, it so is. So what, what are we going to learn from you? Uh, <laughs> Nothing really important except uh, I had always thought I had heard once a long time ago that Dr. Nick was based on a real doctor and that it was uh, uh, Elvis Presley's doctor. Yes, and, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely and, correct. Uh, yeah, Dr. Uh, Nick was a quack doctor on The Simpsons and he appears uh, quite often. He was even in The Simpsons movie and uh, supposedly is modeled on uh, on uh, Elvis Presley's doctor, who was Dr. George Nicopoulos. And uh, he looked after Presley for many years, including looking after his whole entourage, his, his musicians. And uh, he was notorious for overprescribing drugs. And uh, eventually he was indicted on 14 counts of overprescribing of which he was acquitted, but eventually his medical license was uh, was taken away and he had to go into a different career. He actually became the, the uh, stage manager for Jerry Lee Lewis, <laughs> for whom he's, he also prescribed a lot of uh, medications. And, you know, the uh, Elvis Presley story is a very sad one in terms of his, uh, his demise, because um, when he died, there were so many drugs found in his bloodstream that they couldn't determine actually which one was the cause of death. And um, uh, Dr. Nikopoulos uh, always said that he only prescribed drugs that Presley needed because he suffered from anxiety, he suffered from depression, he had sleeping problems, so that he needed all those drugs. But uh, that's highly, highly questionable. He also prescribed all kinds of opiates to, to Elvis and unfortunately, Elvis, by the time that, that he died, was uh, a shadow of himself, although a very large shadow, if you saw his weight gain. Although, interestingly enough, his, his uh, voice held. His voice was you know, as good at the end as it was at the, uh, at the beginning. But, uh, you know, the Simpsons show very often will sort of make allusions to real-life personalities. So you are quite right. Uh, Dr. Nick, the quack doctor on The Simpsons, was modeled on real-life doctor, the personal physician to Elvis Presley. All right. So uh, we still have one other question outstanding. In 1935, six-year-old Hildegard Domak's accident with a stitching needle led to the introdu introduction of the first commercially available what? And if you know the answer to that one, you give us a call at 514-790-800. Or, of course, you can text your messages to uh, 514-800. Uh, you know, during World War I, 
French munitions workers uh, manufacturing trinitrotoluene, that's of course TNT, uh, which is uh, high explosive, commonly developed unusual sweating, fever, and weight loss. And these are people who were, you know, working with TNT and were exposed to the vapors all the time. Well, apparently inhaled TNT vapors increase uh, the metabolic rate. TNT was too dangerous to use as a medication. But in 1931, dinitrophenol, a chemical relative, was introduced in the U.S. to step up the metabolic rate. It seemed safe in small doses for weight loss and was available without a prescription. But by 1935, toxic reactions involving the bone marrow and skin were noted, and eventually a few deaths were associated with the product. Dinitrophenol also caused cataracts, and about 100 users lost their sight. So, of course, this is no longer legal in Canada or the U.S., but sometimes it is still findable in Mexico, and people bring it back. This is not a good way to try to lose weight. And you know that uh, weight loss, of course, is a huge problem, uh, not only in Canada and the U.S., but generally in, in the Western world, and increasingly in Asia, too. I mean, there, there are more uh, individuals in China now uh, who are overweight than ever before. And, of course, the suggestion is that it is more to adopting uh, some form of the Western diet because, you know, some of the companies like McDonald's and Burger King and all these, they're available in Asia as, as well. So the populations that were used to eating, you know, low-calorie foods and, you know, rice and beans uh, and very little meat now are gravitating towards the Western diet and are, are getting uh, overweight as a result. And so there is, of course, a big demand for any kind of, of medication that controls weight. And, of course, we've talked a lot about semaglutide, you know, which is... Uh, effective, certainly for weight loss, but this is not for everyone. And uh, you have to, you know, discuss this with your doctor before you jump on that bandwagon, because there are downsides to the use of uh, semaglutide as well, even though it's becoming more and more popular. But certainly dinitrophenol is something that should be stayed away from, even though, you know, it, it can conceivably lead to weight loss, but the side effects are, are too grotesque with which to deal. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check what is going on in the world. We'll uh, see what CTV News has to say, and then we'll be right back. I think I mentioned uh, last week uh, that I kind of liked the show that's streaming on Apple TV, uh, which is a, a film version of a book, uh, Lessons in Chemistry. And um, it's, it's the story of a, a young woman in the 1950s uh, who is trying to get into the world of science, which is very male-dominated ba back then. And it tells her life story and some of her successes uh, by becoming a, a, a chef on TV where she explains the science of cooking. It's, it's very good. And uh, what I liked about it is that you don't have the, the bubbling flasks and the colored liquids uh, that you normally see on shows where they're trying to depict uh, chemistry. Uh, they have a lab that really does look like a lab, and they don't have ridiculously connected uh, glassware. 
uh, although there are you know some of the descriptions the verbal descriptions of, of what they are doing in the lab are somewhat questionable but but anyway i, I would suggest that it is a, a fun show to to watch it has also its very serious moments but i i think it's a pretty good uh, depiction of of the book which i also liked all right we have people on the line uh i think we have rick hey rick i'm here, I'm here dr joe hi uh, got an answer for me the, the uh, sewing needle would that be a thimble no no but that's a pretty good guess that's a pretty good guess yeah you maybe a quarter point yeah <laughs> okay. it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, guess but uh, uh, it's more in the medical line thank you okay uh let's see if Hayim can uh have uh, a comment about that um hello hi Hey, Dr. Schwartz. No, I, I only had a, a, a medical health question. Sorry. Well, let's try that. But um, I, I can wait until the end of the show if you want. No, no, go ahead. Um, let's have it. Like two weeks ago, I, I got sick in my chest, like a cough and breathing. I, I have asthma, but uh, it, it went away maybe five days later. And then like Tuesday night, I woke up in the middle of the night choking and like coughing like uh coughing 10 times in a row repeatedly fast and i <laughs> just I, like that but like 10 times I, I couldn't breathe i couldn't catch my breath but the thing was like my mind wasn't working like i was confused like it wasn't functioning and like i didn't really know where i was i, I it's like i had no control over my mind and then maybe 10 minutes later i i was breathing okay i went to sleep it happened again and I, and I woke up choking and coughing, trying to breathe, and my mind again wasn't there. And then I guess I blacked out because I woke up on the floor. The heat in my room was on. The windows were closed. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but um, I just wanted to know. Well, what, what there's only, I'm afraid there's only one thing to say here. You, you have to go see a doctor. Yeah, I, and... I was in the hospital, but um, they didn't know what it was. So they found absolutely nothing? No, they found nothing. My my blood pressure was fine. No diabetics, not high cholesterol. But um, I looked online. They said maybe sleep apnea, but I don't know if I I have that. I still have the cough. And uh, but when I drank apple cider vinegar before I slept, it, it didn't really happen again. Maybe one other time, but not as severe. But I just thought maybe it's a maybe a scientific thing, or I don't know. Well, I can't guess at that, but I, uh, but uh, ap whatever it is, apple cider vinegar would not cure it. <laughs> that that much I can tell you. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this is something that that needs to be followed because you know you're talking about some pretty serious symptoms there. I mean, yeah. if you feel like you're choking, and you know, uh, I mean, um, that needs further monitoring and further uh, investigation. I mean, it could be something as simple as an anxiety attack you know that can have those kind of symptoms but no this needs to be followed up even while i'm sleeping so, i could have an anxiety attack well not no but if you've been anxious during the day for some reason that yeah. can manifest later okay but anyway, i mean the, you know i i can't comment anymore you really need to consult your doctor with that one okay you're the best you're, you're amazing god bless you 
Okay, bye. Okay, uh, so we're still looking for the answer to the question. I didn't think that this would be that difficult. Uh, we're going back to 1935 when six-year-old Hildegard Domak's accident with a stitching needle led to the introduction of the first commercially available what, and I already did give you a clue, is that it is in the, uh, in the medical uh, area. So let's see if anyone can come up with that. I would have thought that just the name Domag, D-O-M-A-G-K, uh, should be a giveaway because uh, we have a lot of people uh, who listen to us who have background in pharmacology, chemistry, pharmacy, medicine, whatever. All right, well, that is uh, enough of, uh, of clues. You know, you go on TikTok these days, and I don't. I don't go on TikTok, but uh, some of my staff do. And so I hear from them about all the stuff that is happening on, on TikTok. And then sometimes I look into this, you know, when they alert me to, to the stuff that is uh, popular. And uh, I know that uh, TikTok is very hot on numerous versions of all kinds of green powders. Uh, and there are all these TikTok influencers who provide enthusiastic support for these products as, as being virtually miraculous in terms of, of health. There's no evidence for this. Uh, basically, you're paying someone to take vegetables, dehydrate them, add a sprinkling of vitamins, and uh, then you get to pay a lot for uh, this concoction. Uh, you know, we're, we're living in this shortcut era. People don't want to read books. They want short snippets of information. They don't want to plan balanced meals. They want shortcuts. And the green powders capitalize on that desire. There's nothing harmful in these, except maybe for the hype that claim all sorts of health benefits. But we do have loads of evidence for eating fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. We don't know what nutrients are destroyed by processing these into powders. As a general rule in life, shortcuts do not work. That goes for exercise, studying, and uh, dehydrated vegetables as well. You know, it's not difficult to eat your vegetables, cook them if you like. Why do you have to remove the water uh, to take the shortcut and eat them as a powder, uh, which uh, I've never actually tasted, but I doubt that it has a, a very satisfying taste. Whereas you can eat your fruits and vegetables and they have a wonderful taste. So uh, I'm not a big fan of these uh, green powders. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic once more and be right back. All right, one more question hanging out there, and maybe Kenny has the answer. Kenny. How are you? Hi. Hi. I got Good. the answer for the thing. Uh, I think it, it was a medical issue. It was cataract tract surgery. Uh, no. That's no, no, that, that isn't it. Oh, I thought, I thought it, it right. was. Huh? No, well, you're wrong. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay, so again, the question is, 1935, six-year-old Hildegard Domak's accident with stitching needle led to the introduction of the first commercially available what? If you know the answer, 514-790-0800 uh, or text to 514-800. 
I think we may have the answer. Yes, James, of course, has come through. I don't know why he took so long today. Uh, the question was hard to Google, he says, since the spelling of Domag, D-O-M-H-E-K, was not at all clear. Well, he at least he did Google and he got it right. It was the first successful use of an antibiotic of the sulfa drug category. Anyway, the, the, the drug's trade name was Prontosil. And uh, Gerhard Domag was a German bacteriologist uh, who was tasked with testing uh, dyes for act antibacterial activity. And these dyes that had been discovered in the 1800s uh, turned out very often to have some sort of pharmaceutical activity. So the Germans were very keen on exploring that. And he found that one of them worked against Streptococcus pyogenes in mice. And that's a bacterium that can also affect humans. Now, Domac's six-year-old daughter, Hildegard, injured herself with a stitching needle while making Christmas decorations December 4th, 1935. She fell on the stairs, stabbed her hand with the needle, and the broken needle stuck in her wrist. It was removed at the hospital, but she developed an infection and a high fever. And when the dressing was removed, the, the arm was swollen and uh, was turning gangrenous. And the surgeon said that uh, amputation uh, was the only thing that he could do. But uh, because Domac had worked with Prontosil in the lab and found that it worked on, on mice as an antibacterial, he got permission from the surgeon for treating his daughter with Prontosil. And uh, it worked almost miraculously. And uh, the little girl recovered and the arm was not amputated. And uh, later on, uh, the same drug Prontosil also supposedly saved the life of Churchill, who in 1943 contracted pneumonia while traveling to Tunis to plan the D-Day invasion. And he was successfully treated with a, a, a drug in the Prontosil uh, family. So it was a very interesting uh, discovery made by Gerhard Domag, who received the 1939 Nobel Prize in Medicine, but he was not allowed to accept it because Hitler did not allow any Germans to accept the Nobel Prize because too many had been given to Jews. And But uh, after the war uh, in 1947, he did receive the Nobel Prize. You know, today you can walk through a pharmacy and you can encounter a device that automatically reads blood pressure. Well, 100 years ago, that encounter may well have been with a psychograph that read your personality traits and predicted success in life. After donning this metal helmet equipped with numerous rods that pivoted to match the shape of your skull, you would walk away with a printout that assessed your mental attributes on a scale of one to five and offered advice on making changes. For example, a reading of three for wit would say, Try to get fun and mirth out of life. Smile and joke with others to improve your wit. You need to appreciate more of the ludicrous in life. <laughs> anyway, the psychograph was invented in 1905 by Henry Lavery, who capitalized on the public's interest in phrenology, which was the brainchild of German physician Franz Josef Gall. Introduced in the late 1700s, phrenology was based on the belief 
that the shape of the skull reflects a person's mental abilities and reveals specific character traits. Gall came to this conclusion in his school days when he had noted that the most intelligent student in his class had noticeably prominent eyes and a large forehead. Gall rationalized that just like muscles that increase in size with exercise, parts of the brain that are most used expand and distort the skull, producing bumps that are then amenable to analysis. Intelligence, mathematical skills, musicality, and numerous characteristics such as love of children and desire to own material things could be determined by studying an individual's skull. Phrenology became all the rage, and even writers like Walt Whitman, Emily Bronte, Edgar Allan Poe, and incredibly, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, the detective who is the very embodiment of logic and a tireless promoter of basing theories on facts, even he bought into this fad. Conan Doyle depicted both Sherlock Holmes as well as his highly intelligent archenemy Professor Moriarty as having dominant foreheads. Upon finally encountering Holmes, Moriarty remarks that Holmes has less frontal development than he would have expected. Interestingly, Conan Doyle himself had a prominent forehead. And the author um, hailed from Edinburgh. He could have well been influenced by George and Andrew Combe, who had founded the Edinburgh Phrenological Society. And that building still stands today. And uh, you can look at it. It's decorated with busts of Combs as well as those of Gaul and his disciple, Johann Spurzheim, who actually coined the term phrenology. It was Spurzheim who, who said that uh, diagnosis of traits by examination of the shape of the cranium was important because these traits could be altered. People whose skull showed signs of weak intelligence were not doomed, he maintained. If they were identified and provided with means of education, the appropriate part of their brain would be exercised and would increase in size, boosting their intelligence. As Persheim's lectures popularized phrenology, first in Victorian England and in America, where his methods were adopted by the brothers Lorenzo and Orson Fowler, who became noted phrenologists and even commercialized Fowler heads that were busts marked with areas representing different attributes. These were widely used by phrenologists as they palpated their subject's skull with their fingers. Companies based hiring practices on phrenological analysis. Marriage partners were selected based on skull shapes, and parents were keen to learn about their children's future prospects by putting them in the hands of a phrenologist. Lorenzo later hung out a shingle in London that led to an encounter with Mark Twain, who poked fun at Fowler by remarking that the phrenologist had found on his skull a cavity where humor ought to be. Many cartoonists also had fun at the phrenologist's expense, and to most scientists, the suggested link between bumps on the head and innate characteristics seemed absurd and worthy of being mocked. And, of course, phrenology is worthy of being mocked. There is no scientific basis to it. As a recent analysis of 6,000 different MRI scans of, of skulls and brains showed that there was no relationship whatsoever between 
the morphology of the skull and uh, the structure of the brain. So I would say that people who believe in phrenology should have their head examined. And that's it for today. We've run out of time. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz, and I'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.